Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is the first episode of Zen Compass, and I'm your host, Julio Rivera. I fell into meditation after hitting a breaking point with chronic stress, and since then, it has had such a positive impact on my life. Now I started an app and podcast to hopefully inspire you and others to meditate as well. On the Zen Compass app, meditation teachers instruct live video classes to help people build a practice through guidance and community. On the Zen Compass podcast, we'll talk to teachers, creators, and entrepreneurs on obstacles they face, how meditation supports what they do, and what exciting work is on the horizon for them. On this first episode, we have Pandit Dasa, who spent 15 years as a monk in New York City. Since then, he's left the monastery to live as a meditation teacher and mindfulness leadership expert. He now speaks about mindfulness at different companies in America and instructs live classes on Zen Compass. Today, we'll dive deep into his personal journey and discuss some tips on how meditation can be incorporated into our daily lives. Enjoy. Thanks, Pandit, for coming on to the podcast. I read your book, The Urban Monk. I finished that, and I was extremely astonished and, and inspired by your story. So I said I got to have him on this podcast. So so thanks for, for coming on. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy uh, to be here, and I hope you enjoyed that read. I know it's a bit of a wild journey, what I've been through, a few <laughs> different countries. My life seems like it's been a roller coaster, but I think all of that roller coaster has taught me some very valuable lessons that I'm hoping to share with the world. Great, great. So why don't we start off with, you know, how did you uh, get into meditation? Well, I got into meditation. My first exposure to meditation came from my parents, actually. Mm. Um, growing up, my parents, I saw them meditating uh, on a regular basis. My dad, I think he was doing it every day. I, as far as I can remember, since I was like seven years old or, you know, I've seen my parents meditate. Even if it was five minutes or 10 minutes or sometimes half an hour, an hour. So I did see them meditate. They never pushed it on me. Um, and I sort of accepted it as my culture coming from India. A meditation of prayer was sort of a, a daily thing for my parents. So I saw that uh, growing up. So for me, meditation was not a new thing. So, But when I really got into meditation in a deeper and profound way, was when my life was sort of turned upside down by some, you can call them unfortunate instances, but if you look back at it, I would say they were very fortunate instances in my life. So my growing up, I grew up in Southern California in Los Angeles. My parents set up shop on Venice Beach when they first came over from India. You know, they didn't have come over with money. They came over just with a determination to be successful and to have a good life for their family, which is just the three of us, my mom, my dad, and myself. So they were selling gift items on Venice Beach. I was seven years old. It's 1980. Um, that was my first exposure to American culture was on Venice Beach. They were working seven days a week, working really hard to put food on the table, which they did very successfully. Within a seven uh, or eight-year period, they established a multimillion-dollar jewelry business. Mm. It's Obviously, it wasn't just eight uh, working seven days a week because many people work seven days a week, and they're not going to be able to do that. Uh, so we have to say that it was luck. Some of it was karma, whatever you want to call it. But they established a multi-million dollar jewelry business. We began living the American dream, living on a beautiful house on the hills of Glendale, California. Over The view from my bedroom window was a postcard view of downtown LA. That's <laughs> the kind of view you'd, get, you know, you'd come up to take pictures of. Right. And I would see that every day. So we were really living a very lavish, very luxurious lifestyle. But what happened was in the early 1990s, my parents' jewelry business caught on fire. The factory that they had caught on fire and burnt down. And that caused us to lose everything. And then in an endeavor to try to figure out what we were going to do, maybe it was a bit of a desperate attempt, 
by my folks to figure out what the next step was, how to sustain our life because our entire lifestyle was being sustained by that business. They decided to explore business opportunities in post-communist Bulgaria in 1992. Bulgaria had just come out of communism and they didn't have much. So they were, it was an open market for just about any kind of product. So my dad was good at importing things from India. So he decided, we started importing things from India, like clothing and other items that people could use. And so my mom and I decided to leave everything behind in LA and join my dad in Bulgaria. So we packed up everything and moved to Bulgaria. Now, I was living in a one-bedroom apartment in Bulgaria, uh, which was really a tiny little apartment. Nobody in that country spoke English. Now, just think about it. I'm living a luxurious lifestyle in Los Angeles, California, living the American dream to its fullest. At 16 years old, I get a brand new car. Right? So that's, I mean, that's, it was luxurious, you know? Right, yeah. My dad's driving around in a Benz. So we went from that kind of a luxurious lifestyle to living in a country where the government had just been flipped upside down. Nobody spoke English in that country. When I say nobody, literally that meant nobody. Everything on TV was in either in Russian or in Bulgarian. Wow. All the movies were a couple of years old that had already been in the U.S. like a few years ago. Uh, there were no basketball courts. There was no tennis courts. These are the things that I grew up doing. These were the things that I loved. These are the things that gave me my identity. And imagine from going from having everything to having nothing. So all of the things we distract ourselves, whether it's sports or friends, movies, TV, entertainment, all of those things were basically were taken away from me in one sense overnight. Wow. I'm sitting in Bulgaria without anything, without friends, without TV, without any movies to see, without any sports that I could play. I had not much to do. And so that that's where my internal journey began. So you, your question earlier was, you know, how I came into meditation. Right. You know, how was I introduced to it? I was introduced to it by my parents, but I didn't take it seriously growing up until this time in Bulgaria when I had nothing left except a lot of questions. Questions like, why is this happening to me? I think it's a question a lot of us ask ourselves when we go through something difficult. What did I do to deserve this? Yeah, exactly. Why me? And I've been a good person. Mm. I haven't hurt anyone. Even though I had a lot of money, I was helping people uh, just in different ways. I was, I'd never taken anything from anyone. I'd never hurt anyone. So why was this happening to me was a question I was being haunted by. And there was no way to distract myself. So I had to go inward and begin my inward journey, and which meant that I also began my meditation practice in a much more serious way. This is the time that I really began meditating with a, with a deep sense of purpose, the purpose being to understand who I was, what my purpose in life was, and how did I get to where I am now, and where am I going from here? Mm. So it was in around 1993-1994, in Bulgaria, is when I began my meditation practice. All right. Awesome. A lot of those questions that you asked yourself, I could even personally relate to. Um, being 28 years old, living in New York City, a lot of the questions that am I asking myself is when things arise, is what am I, why is this happening to me? And, you know, a lot of bigger questions like what am I here for? What am I supposed to do? Um, what is the impact that I want to leave? You know, you're in Bulgaria. Like, how did you end up uh, deciding, like, I want to become a monk? So, while I was in Bulgaria, that was the furthest thing from my mind because we were working to survive. We mm. just lost an entire fortune. Ah, right. um, and so we were just trying to, the only thing on our mind was survival, economic stability. And the question on my mind was, am I going to be living here for the rest of my life? Is this what destiny has in store for me? Bulgaria, the end. <laughs> uh, or am I going to get back to the, there was so many questions on my mind. Um, so after about spending two years in Bulgaria, 
because the country was unstable and even felt a little unsafe for us as foreigners, we decided to leave the leave leave it behind and come back to the U.S. So this time we moved to the East Coast to New Jersey so that we could be close to New York for business. So my parents decided to stop, open a retail store in Midtown. Uh, I helped them a little bit, and then I worked even in the mortgage industry in the mid '90s for a couple of years doing home loans and mortgages. Uh, well, it was a very difficult time <laughs> to do mortgages, <laughs> uh, but doing that for a few years not really finding satisfaction in that. And I was also just, I'd been uprooted quite significantly. Uh, once from LA, we kind of put our roots down in Bulgaria a little, but then we moved from there to the East Coast, which is also very new for me. I don't have any friends and family here. So I had been uprooted a couple of times very thoroughly. And so I just felt like I needed to take a break from everything and try to figure out really what my purpose in life was. And it was at that time I decided to go on a meditation retreat to India. I mean, there's a lot more I can say, but just sort of fast-forwarding the whole story. Right. I went to Mumbai, India in 1999. So the six years prior to that was really turbulent. So I went to Mumbai to live in a monastery, and the idea was not to become a monk. Literally, there was no idea in my mind that I'd become a monk. <laughs> I just went there on a vacation as a retreat for myself to reflect on what had just happened in the last seven years of my life. Wow, yeah. Where I ended up from L.A. to Bulgaria to New Jersey to Mumbai. Like, what just happened? Um, so I went there and was living with 40 monks, sleeping on a hardwood floor, um, living out of my suitcase, waking up at four in the morning because the meditation practices started at five. And we did a variety of different meditation practices, spiritual practices till about 8.30 or so. So it was an everyday three and a half hour program, uh, seven days a week. It's not like a weekend you didn't get to do it. You, you did it every day. And then the rest of the time was spent, during the day was spent, you know, serving each other, serving the community, helping to cook, helping to clean. It was a life of simplicity, humility, and service. Those were the components sort of we focused on. And to my surprise, I found incredible contentment living in that kind of a life. You know, I found myself to be more content living out of a suitcase, getting up early, and serving than I had found living as a millionaire on a hill in Los Angeles, California. Mm. And so my one month, I decided to turn that into six months and spend time in a few different monasteries. And then gradually, after the six months was over, I, I still wasn't a monk. I mean, I was living as a monk, but I didn't see myself as a monk. I was just thinking that, oh, I just extended my journey from one month to three months to six months. I was yeah. just extending it because yeah. I was finding such fulfillment. And I'm like, it doesn't make sense to walk away from something that's fulfilling you so much. Right. So when my visa expired in India, then I came to the U.S. and moved into a monastery in Manhattan in the, on the Lower East Side. And I just thought I'd spend like three months or six months there just seeing what it was like here and ended up spending about 15 years living as a monk. Most of it was in New York City. About 14 years of it was in New York and the rest of the time was in India just throughout those 15 years. So this was not part of the game plan. This is not something I thought of doing when I was growing up as a little kid. Like, yes, I'd like to be a monk someday. You know, that's not any, no one says that or thinks that. Um, so it kind of happened to me. Life took me on that journey very unexpectedly, as life usually does. And uh, 
that's how I became a monk. So I'm interested, like you decided to stay in New York City as a monk uh, versus maybe, you know, being a monk in, in, in India. Um, well, one thing was my visa expired. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, there are that, some practical that, that, aspects to it. That's a challenge, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I think after six months in India, I was just also ready to sort of come back. Mm, yeah. uh, and since my parents were in New Jersey, and I before going to India, I had uh, befriended some monks here in New York City. And so I thought, well, why not just move in with them? And uh, that, that, that meant that my parents could also be close there in Jersey City, which is just, you know, it's like 20 minutes, half hour away. So I thought I could stay close to my family and why not move in with some people that I'd already gotten to know in the New York City area before I went to Mumbai. Right. So that was one of the reasons, uh, visa, and it was just sort of, my folks were there and I knew these folks and these monks, you know, mm. but that was one of the reasons I chose to be in New York. Mm. I think this is also, you know, the, the perfect city to you know, help people and serve people because a lot of us are feeling the stress, the anxiousness of, you know, moving from task to task. And, uh, you know, I think meditation in general uh, can help uh, can help a lot of us, you know, in this environment. You know, would you agree? Yeah. I mean, the busier an environment is, the more motivated people are in an environment, the more stress and anxiety and uncertainty there's going to be. Mm. Um, so ambition is good. Motivation is good. We all need it. You know, and then if we, if it goes above and beyond uh, the norm sort of, that's going to lead to anxiety. Right. And yeah. so there are few cities in the world as stressed out as New York city. I mean, walking on the street here is a stressful experience. Because you're walking, one block has hundreds of people walking on it along with you. You cross the street and it's just like, you know, 50 cars are coming at you. So this city is a place uh, which, is, which runs on stress and anxiety. And what, a, what better place is there to help people than this place? Because there's so many people here that need help. Some may admit that they need it and some may not admit that they need it. But they all do in one, in one way or another. And so for me, teaching people meditation or speaking on mindful leadership or speaking on stress management uh, are very satisfying, especially here because this is such a high-stress city. So you spent 15 years as a monk here in New York City. Um, you know, what made you leave the, the monastic life and kind of what are your goals and aspirations you know, now as uh, a meditation teacher. So there are multiple reasons why I left the monastery. Um, and one important thing to understand is that people don't always remain monks forever. If you, I chose not to take vows of monastic life. Okay. So I stayed in the student phase. And as a student, you can stay for as long as you want. You can leave whenever you want. So I didn't take those vow monastic vows purposely because I, I knew that this is not, I felt that I, I don't think I could do this forever. Right. Um, and then there came a time when I just felt like having a family. I just felt like I needed a stable family. And what I mean by a stable family is that because the monastic order is kind of like a university setting uh, where people can come in for some time, train and leave. You could come in and get you know, an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, a PhD. So a lot of people would come in for six months, a year, two years, four years, five years. You know, it just happened to be 15 for me. <laughs> Um, so people would come and go. 
And then when they would go, they would just go and do other things and move to other towns. So you'd, you'd gain friends and you'd lose friends constantly. So at one point, after, as a monk, because I was doing so much lecturing here in New York, at Columbia University, New York University, and college campuses around the country, and after giving you know, yourself to others, speaking to them, teaching them meditation, listening to their problems and challenges, and trying to help them through that, when you come back, you need camaraderie and friendship to talk about your day, talk about your stuff. And I found that that camaraderie was finishing at one point. And then I felt a sort of a, cert, a, a desire for companionship, some loneliness. So I'm like, okay, I think it's time for me to sort of graduate from the monastic path and have a family and then find a way to continue helping people uh, the, you know, in different ways. Mm-hmm. So you've left the monastic life and you're a meditation teacher um, what are you up to now and kind of what is your, what do you feel like your purpose is now as, as a, as a meditation teacher? I think my purpose now in one sense is very similar to the purpose I had while I was a monk, um, which was to help people live better lives. And that's what I was doing as a monk, lecturing and teaching people how to eat healthy, how to think healthy, <laughs> how to behave healthy, how to speak healthy, meaning that, you know, thinking healthy means that thinking in a positive way. Something difficult may be happening, but there's some incredible lessons that we're going to gain from that if we give ourselves time. Speak healthy. Speak in a way that's not going to disturb others. See if you could speak in a way that's positive towards others. Um, and so just eating healthy, speaking healthy, breathing healthy, like every just live healthier lives. And I feel like now as a meditation teacher and as a a mindful leadership expert, that's what I'm trying to do is bring these values into the corporation. So when I am in a corporation, I speak to leaders. So I'm not just teaching meditation. That's one aspect of what I do. A lot of time, most of my time actually I spend giving keynote speeches in corporations, in uh, company conferences, uh, HR conferences, um, at company retreats, speaking on these ideas of mindful leadership, how to become a mindful leader. And what does that mean is, you know, leading in such a way that we're not just focused on the goal and the money, but we're also focused on the people that are helping us achieve those goals. Because too often the people become, uh, get forgotten and only you just yeah. focus on the money and the goals, right? But that's not a very sustainable model because you'll be burning people out if they're neglected. Uh, or if their needs aren't met, they're gonna they're not gonna be as productive as we want them to be. So, when uh, during my talk, so I'm inspiring leaders to become more mindful, be more positive, be more caring and thoughtful about their workforce, so that when their workforce comes into a position of leadership, then they'll behave with their direct reports in the way that they were dealt with. In addition to teaching them how to become better more thoughtful leaders. I'm also teaching them valuable meditation techniques, which aren't religious or spiritual. They're secular techniques, techniques that have been researched by major institutions like Harvard and MIT and University of Pennsylvania and University of Wisconsin. Research is showing that those folks who meditate regularly can have lower levels of stress. They can have lower levels of anxiety. They can be more focused, productive, and they can have, they can improve their emotional intelligence, which is the ability to understand another person's perspective. Mm. So my sort of goal and motivation in life is now to work with anyone, basically, but specifically corporations, 
to help them be more thoughtful in the way they lead, in the way they work, in the way they interact with each other. And with that, I'm hoping that it'll create a much more positive work environment for that company. But not just that, it'll transform that individual who decides to implement these techniques of mindful leadership or the breathing and focusing techniques that I teach, uh, that once they implement them into their lives, that those practices will also help them in their own personal life and help them uh, in their own personal growth and development. One of the things that I'm interested about is your, your meditation practice now. You know, how does that differ from when you were a monk? You know, My own personal meditation practice. Right, right? yeah. When I was a monk, I was meditating for two hours a day. Now that I'm no longer a monk, I meditate for two hours a day. <laughs> um, I took a vow, actually, as a monk to meditate that long every day. And that was a sort of a lifelong vow that I made. Wow. And yeah. uh, so it's been 18 years that I've been doing that. And I really hope I can maintain my lifelong vow. Uh, but my meditation practice hasn't changed in that regard. The only thing is that when I was a monk, I had the luxury of waking up at 4 a.m., 4.30, and start meditating at 5 a.m. Yeah, uh, and really then, early. you know, just finish my meditation by like 9 or 10, you know, because there were other things I would do in between. But now, because of work and travel, you get to bed late, you can't get up at 5, you know, so then my meditation spread out throughout the day, you know, maybe two parts of like an hour each or something like that. So that's the main difference in terms of quantity it's the same. It's in terms of the type of meditation, it's the same. It's just that how quickly it gets done and when I do it, that's the only difference. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, during your meditation practice, are you focusing on the breath? Um, are you repeating a mantra? Kind of what does it exactly look like when you, when you sit down and meditate? It's a little bit of both. Um, of course, in corporations, I only teach breathing and focusing. But my own personal practices, I use mantras, which are a repetition of certain sacred sound vibrations that help calm the mind, that help soothe the mind and soothe our just senses, that our senses get so overloaded living in a busy city. So it helps to calm the mind. Uh, I don't teach that in corporations because I think it would be construed as more spiritual, right. reciting words that may be coming from the Sanskrit language or something like that, maybe a little more spiritual. So I keep that for my own personal self. The techniques I teach are the ones that are more have been researched and things like that in the university setting. Nice. Yeah, the classes that you've done on the Zen Compass app, um, the live meditation classes, you have used uh, the mantras, and I've seen that people really uh, tend to enjoy them. It gets them into a, a relaxed state, repeating the mantras over and over. So it seems to be uh, a useful, useful technique. Uh, you know, I, I mean, do you have any insight into a kind of why that is? Like, why is the repeating of a mantra uh, a word? Kind of helping people get into this relaxed state well one way to understand it is we're utilizing the power of sound to soothe our mind and to soothe our heart and if we think about it when we're not feeling so good or feeling a little down what do we do a lot of times we put on some soothing music mm, yeah and now what is music it's sound it enters the ears and it calms our nerves it calms our mind it relaxes us so we know that sound has the ability to relax us. Now, if you start playing some death metal or some hard rap or something like that, <laughs> obviously that's not going to relax us. That'll excite us. So music can move our emotions. Sounds can move our emotions. And so these are sacred sounds. Like we, As far as I understand, you can't just make up a word. You can't just say, chair, table, chair, table, and repeat that, for, and you're going to feel better. <laughs> there are sacred sounds 
uh, that actually have an impact on the mind and um, help us calm down. So it's were you rep repeating the word over and over again, and they sort of help us connect with our deeper self, our higher self, and that's how it functions. Ultimately, one has to give it a shot, try it to ultimately experience how how sweet it can actually be. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. So if I'm kind of listening to this podcast and I want to start meditating or I have been doing it, you know, I mean, is there is there advice that you give to people who are, are just starting off or, or kind of building their meditation practice? Yeah, well, a few things. One is people always want to know how long one should meditate. And there's a lot of different advice a lot of different people give out there. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, two times a day. I just want people to start meditating and right. feel good about themselves if they're meditating. And so my recommendation or prescription, whatever you want to call it, I'm not a <laughs> meditation doctor, but still, um, you know, my recommendation is to start with five minutes a day, hmm. right? With five minutes a day, I think very few people of us, uh, people can say that, oh, that's a big obstacle for me, five minutes. How am I going to find five minutes? No one's really going to have an obstacle in their mind. So I like to make a suggestion that is not going to bring up obstacles for people because I just want people to be able to start with five minutes and do it for 30 days. Mm -hmm. Five minutes, 30 days. You may think five minutes is not a lot, but at the end of 30 days, that's 150 minutes. <laughs> so let's, let's look at that side. Yeah. It's 150 minutes of meditation we did in that month. And you got to feel pretty good about yourself for doing that. And if you can do that, increase it by just by a minute or maybe two at the most. If you keep increasing it by a minute at the end of six months, you'll be at like 10 or 11 minutes. That's pretty good. At the end of the year, you'll be at like 17, 18 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, depends on how much you're increasing it. So let's make it a long-term goal and not become that type A meditator that needs to like sort of like be a 30-minute meditator tomorrow because that won't last. And the other advice is sit in a comfortable position. You can sit on a chair. You can sit cross-legged. Don't get too comfortable where you fall asleep. Because uh, that's not the purpose. The purpose is to energize the mind, keep the mind active, bring the mind back to the exercise, the breathing and the focusing when it wanders. And that bringing it back is like push-ups for the mind. So that'll strengthen the mind. But you can sit on a chair or cross-legged. Either is fine. It's not too comfortable. Don't lie down when you're meditating. I mean, that's all great. I think that's great advice uh, because when I talk to a lot of people who have started to meditate, they see that uh, they see the value of meditation, but they all wish they could meditate more, you know, and make it more part of their daily routine. So I think uh, keeping it light, keeping it easy to fit into your schedule is, is important. So I like the five minutes, a, five minutes a day approach. And also one, one thing, one practical thing we can do, we can use our smart device and put, make an appointment in it with ourselves. You know, just make a daily appointment uh, at one o'clock or two o'clock, whatever time you think you're likely to do it, have your alarm go off at that time every day. I just set an alarm for every day for it to go off. And now you're using this technology, which is our biggest source of our distraction to help us do something that's really going to be good for our mind. Mm. I like that mindfully uh, using technology. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's an interesting topic, you know, as technology becomes more and more integrated in our lives. You know, how do we uh, sustain a life of kind of balance uh, with, with that technology? I mean, what are your thoughts on, like, how meditation integrates into this evolving world where technology is literally becoming more and more part of our lives? 
Well, I think meditation is going to be needed much more now that technology is becoming so much a part of our life because you can see we're glued to our cell phones. Uh, we're not only glued to them, we're addicted to them. And, uh, and I think we actually are. I think all of us, I, I can feel myself, it's almost like an addiction. Like the moment it buzzes or it dings, I have to check it. Yeah. And I realize <laughs> that I'm being affected by it. Uh, and, and I lived as a monk for so many years. Yeah, there, you, there you know? you've heard it, people even... Uh kind of former monk has, has trouble. Ha, has the, trouble, you know, <laughs> staying away from my phone uh, and not looking at it every few minutes. Um, so I think the more we are getting into this addiction of technology, the more we're going to be able to need, the more we're going to need to be able to meditate, focus on our mind, focus on our breath, and really disconnect ourselves for a little while. Otherwise, the brain can only handle so much. The mind can only handle so much information. Uh, before it just becomes really distracted. So we're going to need to keep energizing our mind. We're going to need to keep focusing our mind and rejuvenating the mind through meditation. So I think we're just going to need to do more meditation. The more we use these thing gadgets, the more we're going to need to meditate, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. So where can people uh, find out more about you? So I have a website. The website is just like my name, panditdasa.com, P-A-N-D-I-T. DASA.com. Um, you can just Google Pandadasa. I'm also on LinkedIn. So you can look me up on LinkedIn and LinkedIn and see the different speeches that I give. I post them online. Mm-hmm. Also have a Facebook page and Twitter also. So I can be found on most major um, media, including Instagram also. Pandit's on Instagram too. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And and you do the the live meditation classes on the on the Zen Compass. App, Absolutely, so. yeah. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for this conversation. It was great. And, uh, yeah. Thanks, Julia. Really happy to be here.